lot more prospect promotions and uh, fun things in the world of baseball and the collision of young talent with uh, the strangest season in uh, in memory. As we welcome you into this week's episode of the Show Me Bro Show. Quiet. I never start the show with anything other than, hey, folks, how you doing? Uh, like a like a terrible Jay Leno. So this week I figured I'd go a different way. You just or went just, with like the easiest Jay Leno. Is that, what, is that what that was? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I'm running low on ideas of how to be uh, a uh, what's the what's the word good at uh, opening <laughs> a show. <laughs> I think I guess the term. Once we get into the show, I feel like we're fine. I just um, you know uh, my creativity is low with how to open the show. Okay, fair enough. We'll we'll experiment with some things. We'll come up okay. with some new good. ideas for next week. Whew, gotta gotta save myself from going stale on these things. You know, I would say we could try new music, but we never listen to the music ourselves coming yeah, in. Yeah, true. That is true. Um, um, yeah. So you know, what are we gonna do there? Um, but uh, hey, we welcome you to this week's episode of the show before the show, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. I am Tyler Mon. He is Sam Dykstra. We got a lot coming up for you today. Uh, in just a short bit, we will be joined by. JP Morosi, John Paul Morosi from MLB Network and uh, MLB.com and Fox Sports and NHL Network and uh, and every other place where you would imagine you could find somebody that talented. JP will join us here in a little bit. Uh, we talked with him about really what it has meant in this weird 2020 season for teams to be relying on prospects in a very different way uh, than they have in seasons past, for teams to be setting up alternate training sites, the trade deadline approaching, all kinds of stuff coming up with JP here in a little bit. Um, we've got uh, Benjamin Hill and Katie Wu from MILB.com coming up a little while later on. And uh, we are going to talk about some of the guys who have made their debuts over the last uh, week since we talked to you last. I know Christian Pache, the Atlanta uh, Braves outfield, is supposed to be starting left today as he gets set to make his big league debut. Um, the last obviously three, four weeks have been chock full of prospects. It feels like every week now we're getting more and more of these guys to the show. Um, Dane Dunning will be up with the Chicago White Sox today. Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal and Isaac Paredes have been up uh, with the Detroit Tigers for a couple of days. Casey Mize will make his debut tonight. We're recording on Wednesday the 19th. Um, this has been a fun last week or so. I feel as we get started on this that I owe one top prospect who has been on the show an apology of sorts. So here's the backstory. The Philadelphia Phillies summoned their third baseman, Alec Bohm, to the major leagues. Um, Alec last year took part in the Premier 12 tournament. Uh, JP Morosi and, and the two of us will talk about that coming up here in a little bit as well. Um, when Alec was on that roster, uh, I, and maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly, but I am 100% certain that USA Baseball told us that his last name was Bomb, but it is Bohm according to the Major League Pronunciation Guide. So I feel wrong and wrong at the same time. Um, <laughs> that was terrible. I'm so, now I have to apologize for that joke because it was so bad. Uh, but I feel like I got I to gotta put it out there. I'm sorry, Alec. We had him on the show. I feel like I should have just been like, hey, what do you say, bomb or boom? I mean, it, it, it is certainly a learning moment for any young journalists out there. Definitely. Of, of how to do this stuff. Um, thankfully, the Pronunciation Guide, I've been tweeting it out a little bit like, Tarek Skubal, for some reason, is difficult for people to pronounce every once in a while. So I throw yeah. that up just so people know it. Um, you're going to hear be hearing a lot more about these guys this year. Uh, so that pronunciation guy comes very much in handy. Uh, it would be so much fun if his name was Alec Baum. Uh, yeah. 
There, it was so perfect. Yeah. You would hit monster home runs and it just, it lends itself so easily, but it's funny as these guys climb up and obviously it's, it's different for somebody like Alec who went to a, a division one school and was on television and all that. But even that, I know that I looked up like highlight videos of broadcast when he was at Wichita state and those guys were calling him bomb too. Anyway, but Luis Robert is a perfect example because when he was a young, young prospect, we all called him Luis Robert as though he was hosting the Robert rapport on comedy central after the daily show, which I'd tune in to watch Luis Robert do a comedy show. It'd probably be fantastic based on literally everything else he does. That's incredible. Um, And we want him to get healthy too. He left last night's game uh, with a wrist injury, but yeah, you know, it's uh, that, I think you put it perfectly. That is a, if you are a young person who wants to get into covering sports, uh, I had my my favorite professor in journalism college said the the basest level of respect that you can give a person that you are covering, or for that matter, any human being, is to get their name right. Uh, and that I've tried to take that through every facet of uh, of my broadcasting life as well. And I have felt so bad ever since seeing the major league pronunciation guide say "boom" instead of "bomb." This is the whole first segment. We're just going to talk about the pronunciation <laughs> of Alex's last name. <laughs> Maybe we should just do a reading of the pronunciation guide. Yeah, uh, yeah, like just name week. by name throughout. Yeah, it yeah. sounds fun. There's um, some fun ones. Like Hebert Ruiz is yeah. like one that I think people have struggled with in the past as well. Another and, top 100 prospect who made not, his debut this week. Right. Um, so, yeah, helpful tips. So um, with that, let's uh, talk a little bit about some of these guys. Alec goes up, Kiebert goes up, Tarek goes up. There are so many um, guys who I think in an ordinary season we would not be expecting to see get considerable major league time. Uh, Maybe some of those guys would have broken through this year, but uh, they are breaking through now because of what this 2020 season is like and will be like the rest of the way. Sam, take us through some of the, the highlights from the last week from a prospect promotion standpoint for, for what you've seen. Yeah, and we'll talk to J.P. Morosi about this in a little bit, but I think the most exciting one of the week is Casey Mize getting the call. But not only that, it being Tarek Skubal at the same time. Uh, we've talked so long ever since basically the midpoint of last year when it seemed like everything was coalescing really well for that Tiger system around that starting pitching that at the time was that double-A Erie of – you know, this, this is how homegrown rotations are built. You had Mize there, you had Scooble there, and he was in the midst of a breakout season. You had Matt Manning, who spent the entire year at Erie last year. He feels, I feel like he must be coming up in a month or so at the, at the most, if these two guys are ready already. Um, Alex Fado, another first-round pick from a few years ago, he was there. So to have these two guys in place now, and they're not bringing them up to be like, okay, we're going to give you a couple starts, see how it goes, and we'll send you down. They're going to allow them to take their lumps. But the Tigers have been off to a pretty fun start by their standards. Uh, we weren't expecting anything out of them whatsoever. But you know, through 20 games or so, well, through 21 games for them, they are 9-12. and 12. Obviously, that's under 500. But in this time when there are eight playoff teams, the Tigers have a – have a shot at the very least. And that's not something we were expecting out of them coming into the year. Remember they had the worst record in baseball last year. That's why they were able to take Spencer Torkelson number one overall. Now you put these guys in place. That's, that's pretty exciting. And I I'm kind of thinking that, you know, if they put these guys in place and, and they're there for the full year and they get a couple starts in a 60 game season and, 
get their bearings underneath them going into 2021, which they will definitely be opening day starters, or at least in, in the opening day roster. What kind of moves can the Tigers make between now and then? If, if this timeline changes things for Detroit in a very fun way. Um, so their arrival, their official arrival, we always thought this was coming at some point this summer, but the fact that it has actually come now uh, is pretty exciting for the potential of what the Tigers could be. And let's say Mize is as good as advertised right away in the major leagues. That splitter is going to play pretty quick. His velocity is going to play pretty quick. Um, his other secondaries are very good as well. His command is going to play at any level. Maybe they sneak into a, a playoff spot and Casey Mize makes a postseason start. How fun would that be? Uh, you know, they're playing with kind of house money right now, given their start even at nine and 12. And to add two of the best pitching prospects in baseball is huge for them. Uh, the other one that I'm going to be watching very closely is Dylan Carlson with the Cardinals. The Cardinals have already moved him around the outfield a lot. Uh, he's played a lot of center field, but he did get opportunities in both left and right last year at Springfield in Memphis. So he has an idea of how to play around the corners. Um, he might be stuck in a corner long-term anyways, but the defensive growth that he's shown from high school when he was a first base prospect and everybody thought he might just have to stick there to the point now where he's a bona fide center fielder uh, is pretty exciting for the Cardinals. Obviously we know St. Louis is going through some major health issues right now. They were off for a very long time. That's what necessitated the promotion of Dylan Carlson. I wish it was under better circumstances, um, but having him up there as a switch hitter, uh, as somebody, you know, Saris of the, the, uh, Athletic tweeted out this very interesting stat earlier today that said already major league pitching is respecting Dylan Carlson to the point where they're only throwing him fastballs 30% of the time. Now that could be based on scouting reports. That could be, you know, what they've seen in the minor leagues that he struggles with breaking stuff, whatever. But if you think this guy can hit the fastball right away at the major leagues, you're going to go away from that fastball. It, it shows how much teams already know how good, Dylan Carlson could be, and he's going to be a big piece of this Cardinals team. You know, they're going to play a lot of games. I don't have the, the number out in front of me, but they've played 11 games so far. Some of these other teams have played 23, 24. Um, so they have a lot of catching up to do. That means Dylan Carlson's going to be playing a very, very big role uh, for the Cardinals, as he probably should have been doing from opening day. Let's be honest. He was certainly ready for the majors at the end of last year. He was probably ready for the majors this spring. Uh, they bring them up a little later because they didn't, had the room for him. They wanted to give other outfielders a chance. But right, as things stand right now, Dylan Carlson is definitely one of their better outfielders, and he should get a big, big opportunity in St. Louis. And with all these games that they need to make up, all these double headers, all these seven-inning games, uh, he's going to have lots of opportunity to make an impact. And I, he was my rookie of the year prediction at the beginning of the year, right after Gavin Lux got sent down. Uh, and now with all, these, all this experience he's going to get, there's a decent chance that he could pack in you know, a lot of impact to the point where he could steal this away uh, from some of the other favorites in there right now, like maybe a Jake Cronenworth or something like that. There's some really interesting uh, roster moves being made right now that are going to be made. Obviously, we uh, certainly hope that the uh, the health issues, the COVID issues and all of that um, slows and we will see the roster decisions made for baseball reasons. It's been such a, a difficult last few weeks. Um, but it has provided some opportunities for some really intriguing guys to make their way to the majors, and uh, we will see how they affect what already looks like it's going to be an insane playoff picture in the, the weirdest and most different playoff scenario 
uh, in baseball history. So uh, a lot of it to come as we turn the corner toward the midway point of the season and the final week of August, as insane as that is already. Um, so with that, we're going to pivot to uh, a discussion with a guy who's been following all of it at the major league level, the alternate training sites. He's covered the minor leagues and done uh, everything in news coverage in the, the game of baseball over the course of his career. JP Morosi joins the show coming up next. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. We are thrilled this week to get a chance to talk with uh, the prospects out of the game from one of the guys who knows uh, just about everything about the game, and that is your friend and mine, J.P. Morosi at John Morosi on Twitter, who you know from MLB Network and Fox Sports and NHL Network and MLB.com and everywhere else. And J.P., what's going on, man? It's so good to talk to you. How are, uh, how are you surviving the world today? Well, Tyler and Sam, my pleasure. Great to hear your voices uh, on, on the podcast. You guys do a great job. And, and, uh, and Tyler, certainly uh, great to be back with you on, on the air after our, our adventures around the world in the fall uh, to Mexico and Japan there at the Premier 12. A lot of fun doing that tournament. It's been great to see, by the way, uh, speaking of the prospect world, just uh, players from that tournament now appearing in the major league. So it, it's been great to have that, that background of having watched them play internationally and, and now have them in the major leagues. has been a really cool experience here the last month or so. It really is pretty amazing. There are a lot of guys, and we can talk about that somewhat. Uh, I know Kwang Young Kim from uh, from the Korea team last year just made his major league debut with the Cardinals, and uh, obviously Alec Bohm getting called up this week uh, with the Phillies or last week now. Uh, but, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit as well. But there's so much to get to, so much to talk about um, on the, the prospect side, which this year is intermingled and intertwined with the major league side in a way that it's uh, separate from seasons past. Because this year, conceivably, somebody could get the call up, win rookie of the year in 2020 in the 60-game season, and then still be eligible for rookie of the year and win it again in 2021. Like this season's so weird in the way prospects are affected by being called to the major leagues, uh, but they're already having big impacts. And we're going to start in a place that's close to home for you, uh, being a Michigan guy and covering so much uh, with the Tigers throughout your career. This is a big week with the Tigers and with prospects. Casey Mize, uh, their top prospect and top draft selection a couple years ago. He'll make his major league debut tonight. Tarek Skubal, who we've had on the show uh, just within the last, I don't know, a few months now. Uh, Tarek made his big league debut last night. Uh, Isaac Paredes gets a call up as well. The sentiment right now around the Tigers being able to do that after a start to the season that's been pretty intriguing already. Um, what's the feeling been around? It seems like Tigers fans are really pumped, obviously, about seeing these guys up. But what was the reaction there this week? Well, a lot of excitement. And I think that in many ways this is, the, the 
coda, the or, or the the loop back to the beginning, if you will, uh, that goes back three years to the the day of the trade of Justin Verlander, which was August 31 of 2017, and now almost three years later, it's amazing it's gone by that fast. Uh, now the Tigers are resetting a little bit, and they've got the, this young group of players starting to arrive. Uh, Paredes looks to me like a uh, you know maybe almost like a Jose Vidro type hitter, just a really natural bat pass, someone that they think will probably play some third base, um, but is a really intriguing player for them going forward. And then Scooble on Tuesday and Mize on Wednesday. This is, you know, that's 40% of what they believe will be their rotation going forward. And I, I'm, I'm excited to see, as things move on, how they make adjustments. Scooble certainly not a great debut, but someone that uh, the Tigers believe very strongly in, someone who's really made himself into a High-level prospects. Uh, he, of course, he grew up in Northwest Arizona, a very small community there along Route 66, and has one Division One offer from Seattle U, and goes up there and makes himself into a prospect. So he's a great story. And then Mize, of course, has been very much on the radar throughout. Uh, number one overall pick, as, as you well know, two years ago, and and someone who, as as some Tiger people have been telling me the last couple of days, just really determined, focused worker, wants to be great, and and really has shown the polish that made him the number one overall pick has been evident in the work the Tigers have seen them put in the last couple of years. So it really is It's a big week. I, I think they're still short of making the playoffs this year, especially without C.J. Crone. That was a really big loss. He was they're probably the most productive hitter. Jacoby Jones has been great as well. But Crone was really that middle-of-the-lineup fulcrum for them. That was, I think, one of the biggest reasons why they had a very strong start to the year. So without Corona, it's going to be a challenge to make the playoffs uh, in a division where you've also got the White Sox and the Indians uh, there behind the Twins. But then again, uh, with the Indians' situation with their rotation, you don't know quite where they're going to go at the trade right. deadline. So there's still some uncertainty. And I think the Tigers just being in the conversation, to me, guys, is, is emblematic of their overall direction and then just the unexpected nature of this season. Yeah, and, and speaking of that overall direction, what do you think having these guys up now and potentially Matt Manning coming up and you could have the, the big you know troika of, of uh, starting pitchers between Mize, Manning, and Scooble up and having that set right now, what does this do for their almost like short-term outlook in terms of the offseason? Like, do you envision the Tigers being bigger players this offseason because these guys are up essentially doing what the White Sox did a year ago? Well, that's a great question. And I think one thing that I look at the Tigers as being a candidate to do, and, and this is something that Jerry DePoto talked about recently on MLB Network Radio, and I think it's a fascinating concept that we could probably we could do a three-hour show on, on the different ideas about this, but uh, the notion of, of trading young players for young players, uh, and, and where you're, you're especially strong, where you would maybe make that move to, to, to move for, uh, from an area of, of surplus to then address an area of need. Now, the Tigers... They've got Torkelson coming and Riley Green coming. They, they may still have some positional areas where they want to add, whether it's maybe one more corner bat or, or, or maybe one more infielder. But uh, it's going to be interesting to me to see, do they, do they make a, a sort of a reallocation um, and, and try to get still get younger but maybe move a young pitcher? I don't think they would certainly trade Mize. Uh, but do they maybe move a pitcher for a bat? with a team like Arizona, for example, that has a lot of young outfielders like an Alec Thomas, for example. So there's, there's a lot, I think, of, of things to think about. I don't know the Tigers are yet at the spot where they're going to be able to spend aggressively in free agency, although Jordan Zimmerman's contract is, is moving away here pretty soon, so maybe that opens up some possibilities to spend. And, and we'll, I think we'll have to see where the division goes overall. The Indians, I expect, in the next year or two will signal some sort of a rebuild by moving Lindor and maybe even moving a pitcher. And if the Indians do that before the end of the year, 
that maybe to your point, the Tigers feel a little more aggressive in, in their spending and, and they'd maybe make one more move. But this is a team that I think also, I, I look at the rotation and, and Matthew Boyd has just had a, had a tough season so far. And uh, he's a guy that, tremendous person, one of the great people I've met in baseball uh, all my years covering the game. He's just, uh, maybe he's trying a little too hard, but the location just hasn't been there this year. And, and that, to me, is a real issue for the Tigers, to try to find a way for, for Matthew to be himself, to soak up those innings. Because if, if you imagine Boyd is there, Turnbull, I think, has had a really strong start to the year. And, and then you bring in this young group of pitchers. You still have Norris there as part of the conversation. still have Fulmer, obviously, as well, who's now come back. It's actually a pretty intriguing rotation and one that you hope, if you're the Tigers, will be somewhat self-sustaining for a while and not force you to have to really go out and spend in free agency on that part of the, of the roster. And expanding this out a little bit bigger beyond Detroit, Detroit, as we said, are kind of surprising at 9-12 and 12 right now, at least on the periphery of the postseason discussion. Have there been any, any other teams you've followed this season that have surprised you, whether it's through use of young talent or just because it is a small sample right now, uh, they're just doing better right now, but we're, only, we're already a third of the way of the season, and they're much closer to postseason territory than we would have ever thought. I would say Baltimore for sure in the AL with what they've done. And, and, and I think that's a combination of some really unique moves. And some, of course, were left over from when Dan Duquette was the GM, but a lot of them have been uh, really smart moves by Mike Elias. Some have been prospects. Some have been guys that weren't really regarded as prospects who uh, have now become consistent players. Hanser Alberto comes to mind in that regard. Santander, Cole Solcer, their closer, uh, was a waiver claim. That was a great, uh, great pickup there by Baltimore. So there's, uh, it's just a, it's a really interesting mix of players, I think, that, that have contributed to this, to this move. I think what's going to be really interesting to me is to see what the Orioles do with a player like Tommy Malone, who's off to a really good start as a, as a pitcher, obviously a veteran. He's coming up on free agency. Um, what they do with him, and, and do they trade him at the deadline? Do they keep him? Um, because uh, in, in a really unique year where, where teams are probably going to be reluctant to, to take on a, a lot of salary, You've got a player like Malone who's in his last year and doesn't make a ton of money, so he's a relatively easy guy to move if you're only going to have to take on one-sixth of the player's salary and he's not making a ton to begin with. Then you really have a lot of options to, to really, I think, expand your, your staff. And I would certainly mention the other one being the Marlins. I think Michael Hill was really interesting. I think there was an interview that Michael did right as, uh, as camp was getting underway uh, on MLB Network Television, and, and the question was asked to Mike about his overall view of things, and the question was sort of framed like, well, we, well, we think that you guys are maybe not quite ready to win yet, or there's still some time to go before you're ready to compete. And Mike said, no, I, I disagree with the premise of your question. <laughs> We're ready to win right now. And I mean, that was great. I mean, I, I, love, I love hearing that, and Michael's a, a fantastic person, of course. He's, uh, he's really been a steady leader for that organization through a lot of turmoil here in recent years. And I think their, their young group has been really impressive. I, they, they, yes, they've made some good veteran signings, the likes of Cervelli and Aguilar. I think Anderson is something of an older Brian Anderson, sort of an older, older young guy, if you will, 27 years old, age 27 season. But I think he's been productive now where it's not a surprise. Very good knowledge of the strike zone, I believe, from Anderson's standpoint. And then they're pitching, I think, young and has been impressive. I think Pablo Lopez is a guy that probably doesn't get the recognition he deserves. He's been really good. Hernandez as well. I mean, they've got some really good young arms that I think have not really gotten a lot of national love that deserve it. And I think their overall player development apparatus, they've been criticized as a club for so long. 
that I think people maybe forgot to really take a look at who they had, and, and now they're, they're realizing, wow, this team can actually pitch and play pretty well. You've got some teams in the NL East dealing with injuries right now, underperformance. Hey, th- th- this is the year of surprises, and the Marlins right now are in a very good spot to make the playoffs. And that's a team with Cisto Sanchez still waiting in the wings in, uh, in the, the alternate side. Um, and, and that brings me to a, a question that I wanted to, to ask you about, JP, as well, which is this season is so strange in every conceivable way, obviously, and we're all very aware of that. But one of the things that I think has come out over the last few weeks as being um, one of the, the most difficult elements of this uh, from a, an evaluation standpoint as we head toward the trade deadline is the alternate training sites because this is a, a a mechanism that was kind of put together in order for teams to survive 2020 but it's not available uh for scouts uh there's very little live video or things like that now obviously there's been an emphasis on teams being uh, a little bit more free sharing in video and, and resources and all that to evaluate players but in a lot of cases the alternate training sites are kind of black holes because there's just not the infrastructure to get a whole lot of information out about it i know i was reading the thing yesterday that said uh, a, a top prospect essentially described a day of work or a week of work as Monday four at bats in kind of an intra-squad game against a prospect, two days off, Wednesday or Thursday three more at bats, and then another couple of days off. Right now, how are front offices looking at this, especially as we head toward the trade deadline? If you're a team that's looking to ship out some veteran talent and get prospects back, it's kind of difficult to evaluate where a lot of these guys are right now. What has that been like watching that from a, a perspective of somebody who covers this at a national level? Well, Tyler, it's a great point about where where things stand and, and the difficulty in getting those at bats. I think one of the reasons for that difficulty and the limited number of ABs is as players have been called up, uh, there have been a lot of pitching injuries, of course, already this season. And as that has happened, the num the sheer number of people uh, at, at the uh, alternate training location who are stretched out and ready to pitch has diminished. And so you don't even have the inventory of pitches and innings, if you will, there at your site to facilitate the at-bats that, that the position players need. And, and so that, that is uh, a challenge that's somewhat unavoidable. Uh, now, you can, of course, keep adding players. If there's someone on the, on the COVID-related IL, you can, of course, add a player to the major league roster and then uh, replace that person at, at the alternate training site. But um, that, that is a, a very unique dynamic of, of the census of players that you're going to have there and how ready they are. And also, we'll probably see, as time moves on, uh, maybe this month, interesting moves where a, a player is added for the alternate tra- training site, but maybe not even is game fit. And the reason is he's going there because once you're added to the alternate training site, then you can be traded. So there's a lot that goes into that. And and I think one thing, too, that you mentioned, Tyler, the, the video component. I, I think that in this environment, Trust is going to be a really important thing, uh, and and it's interesting. Sometimes I'll, I'll go to Baseball Reference and, and you you plug in two different teams, and they'll it'll you can search through their trade history, and and you really get a sense of seeing which GMs like dealing with other GMs, and and we in the game today we certainly have there's a lot of trees of 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 uh, organizations if you will there's like the Rays tree which is all around now and mm-hmm. and the Indians tree so there's, there's a lot of different organizational trees where there's, there's a lot of different clubs that, that are now led by people that trace their roots back to a particular organization I, I think that the, the communication and the familiarity the personal connection that exists for so many of these executives will be important because we're in the middle of a pandemic it's hard 
to have that same level of confidence in, in making your deals if you don't really know the full picture of the player you're getting back. And so if, if the person on the, on the other end of the phone is someone that you've done business with or that you came up in the, in the, in the industry with over a period of 15 or 20 years, you can say, listen, this guy is maybe not quite 100% healthy right now, but uh, we've got good assurances that, he, that his arm will be there in, in due time. Whatever those conversations are like, trust is going to matter. And I, I really think that the better your already established network of, of connections in the sport is, the more effective that you're going to be as a GM. I really believe that. And the other point I'll make about trades in general is, is this, that I, I think that to trade a player, and obviously it's only one month of a, a regular season to go after the, after the deadline, but I still think that, that moving a person – and possibly a family in the middle of a pandemic is a, a very trying thing. It's yeah. a very difficult thing to ask someone to do. And so I really think that on, on the human side of things, I think the really thoughtful and empathetic organizations will take into consideration who they're trading and where, uh, when possible. If it's a veteran player who's helped you win a championship or helped you win a division or gotten you to the postseason and, and he lives in L.A. and you can trade him to the Dodgers – well, maybe that makes sense from a human standpoint, but you might not necessarily want to trade him, or he may not be totally comfortable in the middle of the pandemic moving to the opposite corner of the country from where his family is right now. And you might also not really get the full best version of that player if his thoughts are elsewhere, which is only understandable. So I really think I want to emphasize here the human side of this. I really think that the human questions about what's best for a player, who do I know, who can I trust, those sort of uh, more subjective dynamics of, of running a team and making moves. I think we may not know it, but I believe those things are going to be in the background for a lot of different GMs as they make moves here in the coming days. Let's dive into to some guys specifically. This season has seen uh, already four of the top five MLB Pipeline uh, outfield prospects uh, make impacts at the major league level. One guy just called up yesterday, Christian Pache, who's number four overall among the out, the outfield prospect rankings uh, with Atlanta. Uh, Joe Adele is up there. Dylan Carlson is up there now. The two guys in the top six who have not made their debuts yet are Jared Kalanick and Julio Rodriguez, who are teammates in the Mariners organization. I know there's been some discussion that maybe Kalanick gets a look this year. Maybe Rodriguez would have if he didn't have the wrist injury. But uh, JP actually reported the other day the, the cast is off, and he should be able to get back into getting some work uh, by the first week of September. But Luis Robert is really where I want to start this conversation because he – has been such a phenom to start the year. This is something that the White Sox knew was coming with him. They gave him the major league contract before the season started. He was going to be on the big league roster and in the big league outfield uh, to begin the year if we had a normal year. But an 847 OPS, he's got five homers, uh, and he's just been electrifying as a talent. Does he strike out a lot? Yeah, maybe, but he's also a, a very young guy. Um, has Luis Roberts' ability to jump into the major league level and be this much of an impact this quickly has that surprised you or what's the sense of you've gotten around baseball looking at him well he is a tremendous athlete i think that that to me is is apparent just from watching him and and just the physicality of him as a player the white Sox, broadly speaking are a team that i just think are a lot of fun to watch i mean they, they have such a, just a, a brand they're, they're, there's athleticism everywhere and style and and speed and power they have got i i think one of the great collections of talent in the game and and robert for me for him to have arrived and and played up to uh, i think the billing and up to the expectations as quickly as he has i think reflects very well on their player development apparatus too we know how talented he is but also w when you get players that number of players graduating around the same time you've got to credit chris Getz, of course running the, the farm system there 
and, and just overall the, the right framework for that team to succeed. I know at times as a team they've had a little bit of a, a, a slow start from a standpoint of results at, at different times, but I, I'm a big believer in them. I, I think they're a playoff team. Tim Anderson is great now that he's off the IL. Uh, he has looked phenomenal. He, he could bat 400, I think. Um, so, But Robert, to me, he really has that, that polish uh, to go along with the power. I, I think he's, he's just a, a joy to watch. He has been as advertised. The, the contract, I think, was, it was a good decision by all parties there. And, and I, I know just someone that watches the AL Central a lot. <laughs> I'm really excited to watch him play for a lot of years to come. And uh, pivoting back to what we were talking about with the trade deadline, you did this piece recently about four teams that, that could pull off one of these you know, creative deals at, at the deadline. You quoted Jerry DePoto earlier about maybe trading young players for young players, challenge trades. Immediately makes me think of Jazz Chisholm for Zach Gallon last year between the Marlins and Arizona. But there's two teams I want to ask you about that you wrote about here. The first one being Arizona. Uh, the D-backs right now right in the thick of that NL West, just behind the surprising Rockies and just ahead of the charging Padres. Um They've been one of the deeper farm systems that we followed over the last 12 months, and they felt like they were going to continue to get deeper in 2020. Unfortunately, their guys haven't been playing enough to to prove that they can jump higher. But Christian Robinson, Alec Thomas, who you mentioned earlier, Corbin Carroll, a really deep system. How do you envision maybe them dipping into that system again and, and trying to add surplus to the this team, especially in the starting rotation? Well, I think for them, uh, one scenario that I think would make a lot of sense would be for the D-backs to potentially speak with the Indians about Plesak or Clevenger. And, and again, that circles back to something I pointed out before about, okay, Mike Hazen knows the guys in Cleveland well. He worked there. So that's an easy conversation for him uh, to, to speak with Chris Antonetti or Mike Chernoff about a possible deal there. And the Indians need some consistent outfield bats, that was, whether that's Robinson, Thomas, Carroll. One of those names I, I think would be it's one of those classic discussions of, okay, if it's – if Robinson is the, is the offer, uh, it, Robinson for Plesak, who says no? And, that, and that's you'd have to think about that, I think, for a moment before you make a real firm judgment on it. Of course, Plesak's stock is somewhat down because of the situation there with breaking COVID protocol at the moment, but he's still a very talented pitcher, and he's still very young. So that, that to me, is, is a, a real nice fit where, you know, Robbie Ray has struggled this year. He's going to be a free agent after the season's over anyway. Um, Bumgarner's on the IL. That's a real concern. So uh, the D-backs, to me, are, are a club that probably has to find a way to add one more, one more arm before opening day of next year anyway. So why not do it now? You, you've, you've got the surplus at the moment with, with the outfielders. Take one of them and, and get the best pitcher you can get. And I really think that Cleveland is a team I would call if I'm Mike Cajun because Cleveland has needed for a long time any level of consistency with their outfield bats. If you look back at, at Cleveland's rosters the last few years, it's been a lot of platoons, and it's been a lot of a player comes in for a while and then leaves in terms of their ability to really hold down an everyday spot in the outfield. They, they've relied so much on infield offense that, that whenever Lindor moves on, which is uh, very likely, as we all know, um, that they're going to have a significant hole in their lineup. And it would be really great for them to have an outfielder that they would be able to slide in there and say, okay, here, take 500 plate appearances in a normal season, and you're going to be our guy in left, center, or right. They really haven't had players like that for a while. So I think that's one situation, Cleveland, Arizona, on a starting pitcher uh, going to Arizona that I think would make a ton of sense. 
And the other one I wanted to ask about, and the one you finish about in your piece, is the Angels. And my general question is, what do we do with the Angels? But more specifically, <laughs> you know, them being 8-16 and 16 right now, and Mike Trout being off to a really solid start, and I know Joe Adele had some stumbles earlier, offensively and defensively, seems like he's riding the ship. The pieces seem to be in place, except for the starting rotation. When a team starts out 8-16 and 16 like this in a 60-game season, do you think they could be movers at the deadline and try to have a really impressive second half to get one of these eight playoff spots or do you feel like that ship is too far gone with them to trade a Brandon Marsh or Jordan Adams who you mentioned in the piece well I think that trading Marsh or Adams would make a lot of sense because as we know the outfield is is somewhat set of course so there's a pretty good guy in center field uh and then uh, Adele also can move around they've got Upton still under contract Otani the fact that he is there as as a DH Will I think sort of complicate some of the uh, the, the at bats available at, at different times uh, to the outfielders going forward. So I mean, to me, it's a natural fit for them to move one of those young outfielders to get a starting pitcher. They need controllable, reliable, good starting pitching. They've needed it for years. This is not a new storyline for the Angels, unfortunately, uh, and I, I think it's only become more evident right now in that division. They are so far behind. Oakland. They're so far behind Oakland, and just in terms of the way that the, the club is set up, um, even from the standpoint of the prospects, you think about Oakland has brought in Murphy, who's been very good, uh, so the farm system has produced a lot for Oakland that, that really hasn't uh, up until, I think, now with Adele coming for the Angels. Um, I, so I, I would say that trading an outfitter for an arm is, is the way to go for Billy Epler. I'm just not sure how impactful of an arm that they'd be able to get. You know, Marsh, I think, w would get you a, a legitimate arm. Is, it, is he good enough to get Plesak? Uh, that, that's an open question for me, but I think that's the kind of deal they should be thinking about. Brian Goodwin, for me, is, I think, a really good platoon outfielder. I think he is underrated. I look at Goodwin as being a really strong candidate to be moved by the Angels. Uh, I would love to have him on my team if I was going into the playoffs. I think he's a very versatile, good defender who can really, I think, as a platoon guy, be well above average. So I, I think he's a, a good fit to be moved. But I think overall, the, the Angels just simply do not have the, the critical mass of starting pitching. And, of course, one of the great ironies here is that Mike Clevenger was originally an Angel, traded mm -hmm. for Vinny Pistano years ago. So um, that was obviously a great move made uh, by the Indians and, and the Angels, uh, still trying to, I think, catch up and just get that depth chart back to where it needs to be. And uh, unfortunately for the Angels, the story remains the same. Trout has been brilliant. The pitching has not. And they're in a very competitive division where it's going to be very hard for them to make progress, I believe, until they address in a really meaningful way that rotation. And we could we could do this for an hour on so many different teams and how fascinating their systems are right now, JP. But we'll we'll get you out of here with a couple more. Um, there is one team that has been uh, very much on on our radar from the prospect side for a while, and that's the Seattle Mariners. And right now we're seeing you know Kyle Lewis with the way he started his season, Evan White, who I think people recognize so rarely elite defensive work at first base and people have recognized that instantly with Evan White and how good he is over there there's so much still on the way with that team obviously they got a lot of pitching talent that's already graduated or is up at the major league level now but Jared Kellenick and Julio Rodriguez and Logan Gilbert some of these dudes who are a little bit uh, further away from those debuts when you look at where the Mariners are right now um, that is a fan base that has been starving for so long. I believe that's the longest playoff drought in American major yes. professional sports right now. It is. Um, yep. They're seven and eighteen to start the season, so it hasn't been a, a great run to start the year. But is this on the verge of getting over that peak for the Mariners? Are they finally in a, in at least uh, earshot of okay, this is a Mariners team that can compete in that division? 
I think they are because, uh, to me, Tyler, they're they're close to if if not they're already of having the best system in that division. And and once you you pair the best group of arriving talent with some pretty good young players who are already there, and J.P. Crawford is a very young major leaguer who I think is really coming to his own this year along with Lewis. That's a nice group of players. And and you point out on the pitching side, too, George Kirby, they're really high on him as well. They believe that he's he's got a chance to be a, a very solid starter for a long time. So maybe they make a move uh, at the deadline this year to even add a little bit more to that group of players. But I, I think what they've done, Tyler, is that they've, they've got a collection of players roughly the same age who are going to arrive to the major leagues at around the same time. Right. And time after time after time, that is the recipe that gets you success. It's a, a position player group to lead your organization. It was that way for the Cubs. It was that way for the Royals. That's the kind of, uh, of overall effort that you need. You, you need those guys to set the tone. And, and I think the, the Mariners, Kyle Lewis has been brilliant this year, maybe the rookie of the year. I love the uh, you know, Adam Jones and, and uh, Kyle going back and forth a little bit with, with Adam's encouragement for Kyle. Kyle grew up wanting to be Adam Jones and emulate Adam Jones. I think that's a really, really cool story. Of course, Adam began his career with the Mariners. So there's, there's just a lot to like there about just the way they're overall – coming together. And so I, I've been very impressed by the work of Jerry DePoto, Andy McKay, of course, as their farm director. So, I, And you look at that division. Houston, I think, has done a very admirable job this year with, with Dusty Baker there uh, of keeping the momentum going as best they can. Without Verlander, they're still in a playoff spot here as we speak today. That's a pretty good job early on by Dusty. Um, now their pitching certainly will, uh, will probably become a little weaker as time goes on just simply because of, of the veteran nature of, of Verlander and Granke, and as, as they, they move forward. So around the time that maybe the, the Astros' rotation starts to dissipate a little bit, the Mariner pitching should be arriving, and that's going to be a pretty fun team to watch. Now, Oakland, I think, is still going to be here for a while. They've just got a great way about them. Bob Melvin does such a phenomenal job there. And Texas, though, you know, looking at Mike Miner, he's off to his tough start this year. I'm not sure what the Texas rotation looks like in a couple years down the line. So all that is to say – I think Seattle's got a real opportunity here. And I, I know I've been saying that for a couple decades. I, I've always been a, a believer in the Mariners. But, uh, but I, I, think, I really think they're due this time uh, in the next couple of years. Maybe not next year to make the playoffs, but, but I really think that if, if they're not in the playoffs by 2022, I'll be surprised. All right, JP, last serious question for you. This is uh, an offseason that we are approaching with so many bizarre question marks. And if one of them, uh, and we're we're not asking you to, to break any news here or anything, but one of them is how do teams get prospects some type of work? I know even as recently as the night of the draft's first round, I was watching uh, Zoom calls with player development directors and GMs who were saying, yeah, we're not really sure what we're going to do with these guys yet, but hopefully we'll get them to a point where we can get them some regular work, yada, yada. There was a story, I know Baseball America had a story this week about uh, the Dominican Winter League and how potentially that could be very prospect-packed this year. Um, Major League Baseball and the Australian Baseball League just re-upped their agreement uh, in which MLB sends prospects to Australia. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about a, an expanded Arizona Fall League potentially, but as we know, uh, everything changes every five minutes in the country that we currently inhabit when it comes to this pandemic and everything. How much anxiety is there in front offices right now of we got to get these guys work somehow, but we're not sure how that is going to happen before the close of the calendar year? Well, there's a lot of anxiety, Tyler, and I think it's a really good point about just how organizations are trying to work through the different, the different scenarios. Uh, I think on its on its most basic level, uh, international winter leagues, while incredible and, and they've done a great job uh, of 
both developing prospects but just providing a wonderful caliber of baseball for the world and growing the game around the world. As long as we're in the situation where it is difficult to enter and exit uh, the U.S. from a standpoint of just travel and clearing customs and what your quarantine mm-hmm. must be, uh, it's going to make it difficult. I think that's that's where just as, as long as there are uncertainties about ingress and egress from a country, uh, there will be, I think, a, a renewed focus on trying to play games and have leagues in areas of the world where you don't need a passport necessarily to access them. So I think that's probably um, where part of the conversation will be. I'm sure then, of course, for your international prospects, you want your Dominican players probably to play in in the Dominican Winter League, and the same thing with Mexico, same thing with uh, certainly Puerto Rico, obviously, as well. We'll see what the Venezuelan situation is by then as well. But I think that a lot of it just comes down to probably trying to play wherever it's easiest for you to be from a passport standpoint, while it's not ideal, certainly, um, that's probably the most logical way to handle things. And then even within the U.S., there, there has been that talk, as you mentioned, about maybe uh, having an expanded AFL, whatever that would look like. Certainly it will, it will depend to some extent on what the COVID numbers are in Arizona, in Florida. Uh, obviously right now Arizona, uh, their numbers are lower than Florida's, so perhaps Arizona becomes the, the home as it normally is. I know there's been thought about having a modified instructional league. So many different variables. Uh, what I do know is the league office is working on this, I, I think, exhaustively. I think this is uh, their, their foremost concern certainly is, number one, health and safety of the regular season. The playoffs are right there. And then I think after those two considerations, it's, okay, how do we then pivot and, and make the, the off season uh, meaningful for our prospects and, and, and get them experience? Because I, I would note this, that in November, depending on what the overall American sports calendar looks like, you know, we all love prospects, but all of a sudden if if – the NBA and the NHL are still on recess in, in November after a, a later conclusion of their season. And if college football is, is in a state of uh, uncertainty, to say the very least, there may be uh, opportunities for, for more sports fans in this country to watch developmental baseball, to watch prospects, because uh, that may be what we've got available uh, from a sports standpoint in November in North America. So it, it's a really um, unique year in so many ways, but the fluidity of, of time and sports calendars in this, in this unprecedented year um, perhaps shine a brighter light on, on prospects in the month of November. And uh, just as a shameless plug, we still have the U15 and uh, Women's Baseball World Cup set for November in uh, in Mexico, so all of you can tune into those if, if we get to go forward with those as well. Uh, there JB, you go. Final in, point. In, in Tijuana, my friend. There, there you go. Exactly. Uh, two-part question for you to end on. Uh, who's going to win the cup, and why is it the Avalanche? <laughs> so, uh, well, good question, and I, I really think – the Avalanche are probably my pick. I mean, they're, 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 they're group Tyler, their forward group, McKinnon is just so much fun to watch. I really thought last year uh, they, they were so close to winning that series against San Jose. I really think in many ways they were the better team. And, and for me, and certainly growing up in Michigan, I, I'm familiar with a lot of great uh, playoff encounters between the Wings and the Avalanche in years <laughs> gone by. But I, I, just, I love the way they play Makara's. Just a fabulous defender. I uh, love watching him skate and, and, and the way that he pushes the play uh, from a defensive standpoint. So I, I think the Avalanche, uh, I would say they've got an excellent chance to win the Cup. They're probably my pick. Out East, I've been, I've been impressed by the Flyers, how they've played. 
uh, you know, I think the Golden Knights are a pretty tough team out west as well. So it's just it's it's been great to have hockey uh, for me on. I mean, obviously I grew up in Michigan watching it a lot, and and uh, I can watch it on NBC, I can watch it on CBC, of course, uh, with my my friends in Canada uh, by virtue of how close we live to the border. So it's it's a, it's a really fun time of year for me to have baseball and hockey on all hours, and, and it's really grateful as as I know you guys are too, just to have have our sports back and just trying to be as as safe and responsible as we all can be as, as citizens to keep these sports going as long as we can. Because and again, every day that we've got them, we're grateful, and that's that's certainly how I've felt here uh, recently. Amen to that. The uh, the Nuggets are on at two o'clock today, and the Avs are at three thirty today. So it's going to be a very uh, strenuous time in my household. Uh, JP Morosi, you can find on Twitter at John Morosi, and uh, just one of the the best dudes you'll ever encounter in the game of baseball. And JP, it's so good to to talk to you, man. I also just want to point out, uh, JP tweeted this yesterday. We um, got a chance to cover the the Premier Twelve competition with each other last year, October, November in uh, in Mexico and in Japan. There was a relief pitcher on the USA Baseball staff last year, Caleb Thielbar, who you may have heard that name. Uh, as of right now he's in the major leagues pitched a scoreless 10th inning last night as of this spring going into the spring he was an assistant coach at augustana university in sioux falls south dakota uh and just got a look pitched in that tournament last year i think people saw like oh man he's still got a lot left and uh and now is in the big leagues it's a pretty incredible story uh that i, I wanted to highlight because that was a guy that we really had fun watching last year and uh, it's, it's just so good to talk to you, man. I'm glad you're doing well and the family's doing well, and uh, and we'll do it again sometime soon. Well, well, Tyler, Sam, it was a great pleasure to talk with you guys. Thanks for all you're doing. Just a fantastic coverage, and, and uh, absolutely stay in touch. It's always a pleasure, and, and certainly, Tyler, I look forward to the day when we can uh, travel again to another another country and then call some baseball games. That, that was just such a wonderful experience with you uh, last year, and uh, looking forward to doing it again soon. You and me both, man. Thanks, JP. Thanks, Tyler. Checking in with Benjamin Hill this week with a few stories on the site and coming to the site. And Ben, what's going on? How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. It's kind of a dreary day here in New York City. Uh, a bit gray, a bit um, overcast, a bit sullen even. Even though I look at, at sullen as more of a state of mind, I feel like the day itself is a bit sullen right now. I'm kind of envious of that. It's been blindingly hot here. And uh, the other day I FaceTimed with my sister and her kids who live just outside the city and my niece who is uh, six, she had like a heavy, like a fall winter vest on. And I was like, what are you doing? My sister was like, oh, it's like 65 degrees here today. What on earth? I'm very jealous of what you all are getting out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's another thing. And we can't go down these. Uh, it's, it's just disturbing that it's still very much summer, but we're approaching the end of summer and we're, we got to start prepping yeah. for fall. What? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know how to process any of it. Um, so in the, in the meantime, we're going to keep talking baseball because that's what we do on it this show. Keeps yeah. us sane. Exactly. Keeps the, uh, keeps the wolves at bay as they say. Um, and we're going to start with uh, the latest in our series of stories on some of the the biggest and most unique fans in minor league baseball. Ben's got a great uh, story that is uh, on the site about the mystery box phenomenon that has kind of swept the minor leagues in 2020. Obviously, we've talked a lot on this show over the last uh, few weeks and months about how teams are looking for creative ways to merchandise and do um, some unique things to uh, get themselves back in in the forefront of people's minds to maybe spend some money with a minor league team, buy some merchandise, do some things that uh, are financially beneficial to teams that are not having a season this year. The mystery box topic is really fun and it's really caught fire this year. Tell us about that. Yeah. um, Well, you know, revenue is uh, uh, 
quite a bit harder to come by these days uh, in minor league baseball and with uh, almost any business, unless you're making, I don't know, masks. Uh, so uh, one of the ideas that teams hit on, I, I wish I could say this was the first team to do it because teams love that when there's a definitive first and one team can uh, lay claim to being the first team to offer a mystery box. I'm not exactly sure, but the bottom line is at this point, dozen, literally dozens of teams offer mystery boxes and a mystery box is uh, what its name implies. You order a box from the team that uh, they ship to your home and uh, it has, it costs, you know, anywhere between 25 and $50, depending on the team and kind of the quality of the stuff that they are liable to put in it. Um, and, you know, it might have as few as three or four items or as many as, you know, 10 or 12, again, depending on how much they're uh, charging and, you know, what those items actually are. I mean, you can have a lot more items when you're throwing in things like pocket schedules, magnet schedules, um, you know, little trinkets such as that. But all across the minor leagues, teams are just saying, like, what's in the box? You'll have to find out. Send us some money and we'll send you this box. And uh, it's a good, good way to get some revenue going. I think minor league fans, uh, particularly, you know, maybe the sort of fan who likes to listen, listen to a podcast uh, such as this, um, you know, who really are missing minor league baseball, really looking for a way to support the teams, uh, can do this in a fun way. Um, of course, try to get a mystery box from a team they already like, but it's also kind of fun and even enhances the mystery uh, when you don't even know the team uh, that well and you don't know what you're going to get. And for the teams themselves, you know, it's a good way to, uh, you know, clear out uh, the team store clearance racks, uh, get rid of inventory that is uh, maybe not going to be timely for too much longer. And again, get some money coming their way via the uh, mysterious mystery boxes. And you talked to Lynn Smith for this story who you've designated, and I'm sure research would show this out, that she has like the most mystery boxes in minor league baseball. Um, you know, what kind of stories did she have about some of the things she found? One of the things that stood out to me was her talking about how she didn't even know River Hogs was a finalist for the name of the team contest for Hartford. Imagine the Hartford River Hogs if that would have happened. So that's like a shirt that they threw in, stuff like that. You get to learn about a lot about minor league baseball, like you said. But what are some of the things that stood out from your conversation with Lynn? Yeah, in the story, um, my mystery box story, I, I end up focusing on Lynn Smith. Uh, she lives in Iowa. She is the uh, audiovisual archivist at the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library, which is a, a pretty specific job. And uh, I'd actually met Lynn before in 2018. She was uh, my designated eater uh, at a Florida Fire Frogs game. And uh, you know, she's someone who follows me on Twitter and we interact here and there. And uh, she kept uh, posting pictures of uh, the mystery box, the minor league baseball mystery boxes she was getting. And uh, so I started following along with that. And then when I put the story together, I focused on her because she has bought 21 minor league mystery boxes. Um, you know, obviously she has some disposable income and not everyone does. But, you know, she was saying, hey, look, you know, I love minor league baseball. I would have tried to try, you know, go on a few road trips this year as uh, time and budget allowed. I can't do that, but hey, I can support teams this way. So she started with teams, you know, kind of closer to her in Iowa. She's a big fan of the Burlington Bees. Uh, love the stuff they sent her in the mystery box. And then it just kind of expanded outward from there. Uh, Sam, you mentioned she ordered a Harper and Yard Goats box, mystery box, and got a uh, River Hogs t-shirt that was one of the finalists in their Name the Team uh, contest a few years back. And so a what would have been identity. Uh, she was saying, look, I'm going to have to go to Binghamton now because uh, I got a Binghamton Rumble Ponies mystery box and they sent me a Speedy's t-shirt and uh, I don't even know what a Speedy is. And uh, you who are listening may or may not know what a Speedy is, but it's essentially a marinated cubes of meat uh, that is a Binghamton uh, Central New York specialty. 
on a roll uh, with special uh, Lupo's marinade sauce. I hope I'm getting that all right. But anyway, you order a mystery box, you get a speedy t-shirt. And uh, even if you can't travel and, and visit the team this year, you learn about America through the mystery boxes. And that's uh, some of the things that Lynn was saying to me through these 21 boxes she's ordered, uh, just kind of learning about the teams in question through the truly random assortment of uh, goods that she has received. And let's pivot and talk. You mentioned Iowa. Um, there was a terrible storm that hit Iowa a week, 10 days ago uh, or so now, and really did a number on the home of the Cedar Rapids Colonels. Uh, an outfield wall was uh, essentially pushed over by uh, an inland hurricane type of storm. Uh, a light tower went down. I know you've been um, trying to get in contact with uh, with people in Cedar Rapids to see what the situation is there. There's been some local coverage of this. I feel like on a large national scale, um, the, the story has been lightly covered to say the least. I mean, I know there are people that I know who live in that area who've been without power, without air conditioning, without, um, you know, all of the things that you expect to survive a Midwest summer since the storm hit. What's the situation in Cedar Rapids right now? Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty devastating in Cedar Rapids. And Tyler, like you said, um, I think the combination, obviously, of a pandemic, COVID-19, a lot less media that are, quote unquote, on the ground, uh, presidential election, Joe Biden taking his running mate, um, just a lot of distraction in the country right now. But the um, a, a really unfortunate aspect of um, that is, is something, is true devastation is happening, has happened um, just a little more than a week ago, about nine days ago, two Mondays ago uh, in Cedar Rapids at Derecho, I hope I'm saying that right, but an inland hurricane, they did not have much warning and it is just um, devastated the city, trees down everywhere, debris everywhere, um, you know, homes, just destroyed or damaged, cars destroyed or damaged, people, you know, without their homes, um, not enough shelter to house the people, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, a lot of this obviously outside the realm of minor league baseball, but I've been in touch uh, with the team. I hope to speak to general manager, uh, Cedar Rapids Colonels general manager, uh, Scott Wilson, uh, as soon as uh, we can kind of sync up. And I just want to, I'll do a story as soon as I can. It might be pretty quick, but just saying, you know, this is what happened to the Colonels as sort of a, a indicative of this is what happened is happening in Cedar Rapids. And uh, maybe if you're not from that area or you don't know people in that area to really take a look at uh, really the struggles they're having right now and uh, to help out in any way you can. And uh, as for, you know, a minor league baseball stadium is not, you know, number one on the list of concerns in the wake of a devastating meteorolo- meteorological event. Uh, but uh, their ballpark, the Colonel's ballpark, did suffer very significant da- uh, damage. You can go to their Facebook page, their Twitter page, and see some of those photos. Um, you know, entire light poles uprooted from the ground and knocked over. The entire outfield fence just flattened. Um, you know, they had like 90 mile an hour plus winds for 10, 20, 25 minutes at a time. Um, just truly frightening. And even for an area that's used to some extreme weather, uh, I think this caught a lot of people off guard, and they're going to be dealing with the aftermath for a long time to come. And Ben, just to give people at home who are listening to this, an idea of what it's like to watch a game in Cedar Rapids. I mean, what have been your experiences at Veterans Memorial Stadium, um, you know, in the good times when we were playing baseball, when there wasn't a storm wreaking havoc and all that, but what do you remember about your time in, in Cedar Rapids and what are you thinking of now as you see some of that destruction? Well, I'm a huge fan of the Midwest League, uh, well, the Midwest and the, Mid- the Class A Midwest League and uh, really enjoyed it. I've only been to Cedar Rapids in particular once um, but it's a great ballpark, really lively atmosphere, great, great fan base. And um, 
I, I really hope to go back and, and you know, it's, it's been so tough, uh, you know, in 2020 for so many minor league teams, you know, the Colonels go into 20 concerned about their future and then they lose the season entirely like all teams did. And now they're, they're dealing with, uh, with this. I mean, if, if, if a year can throw as many bad things as possible at you, I mean, I think Cedar Rapids is, is really getting that right now, but um, yeah, I really enjoyed my time there. I got to interview Rody. Uh, I forget his full name, but R-O-D-Y was the nickname. He was a longtime uh, team clubby who lived at the ballpark uh, and had done so for quite some time. So one of those uh, minor league characters, you know, Mr. Shucks, the ear of corn. I think I was in a between inning, um, the ear of corn mascot, of course. Uh, I was in a between inning contest with Mr. Shucks involving catching fish that were launched into the sky. So just one of those uh, quintessential minor league heartland uh, class A experiences. Uh, the Colonels do a great job of it. A uh, long history of baseball in that area going all the way back to the 19th century. I believe 1890 was the first time a team was there. Uh, so deeply rooted baseball fans, fandom, uh, history, and, um, you know, they will carry on. Um, and we don't know exactly what the 21, 2021 season will hold, but there'll be baseball at Cedar Rapids and, you know, really wishing them the best right now as they, they clean up from this. A really tough spot uh, for any year um but for it to have happened in 2020 is just makes everything that much more complicated and that much more difficult so spare some thoughts for uh for what's going on in cedar rapids in that community uh benjamin hill you can find on twitter at ben's biz the stories at milb.com slash ben's biz ben's piece on uh the major league history of the international league a lot of international league cities that's up on the site right now as well we talked about that last week but you can get uh that full rundown uh on the site and ben stay safe and stay healthy and we'll uh we'll talk to you next week yeah, sounds good. There should be a lot. To, there's a lot to talk about every week, but uh, hopefully some more from Cedar Rapids next week, some more fan stuff. Um, and, and who knows what? We're just living in mysterious times, you know, talking about mystery boxes. I look at life as a mystery box. Uh, <laughs> and I can't really extend that metaphor any further. I'm really running out of steam. But help me out here. Thank you. Goodbye. Continuing along this week, our minor league writer spotlight, we return to a uh, terrific story by Katie Wu, which is, uh, it's always a qualification when Katie writes a story. Katie, what's going on? How are you? Hey guys, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for uh, for coming back. So this is, uh, it's a great piece this week that uh, is up on the site at MILB.com right now, went up today. We're recording on Wednesday the 19th, and it is about uh, a, an interesting relationship right now that is uh, currently in existence and probably, we hope, won't be uh, after this year because things will have returned to normal. But um, there are so many things that have gone into the selection of alternate training sites around the game of baseball. And for the Oakland Athletics, there were some challenges in finding one of those sites. So they ended up finding one at a minor league affiliate of their crosstown rivals, the San Francisco Giants. This is a really great story about uh, kind of everybody lifting all boats and pitching in to, to help get something figured out. Tell us about the, uh, the origins of this agreement between the San Jose Giants and the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's and how this whole thing came together. Sure. Um, I think it was really interesting, and I think it kind of just speaks to um, how – how quick thinking and adapting the minor leagues are, you know, the A's, um, they, they love their affiliate in Stockton. That's their California league affiliate. Um, however, at the time when MLB announced, Hey, we're, we need these alternate sites up and you only have a couple days to do it. Let's go. Um, Stockton had actually seen their County, a huge um, uptick in positive COVID-19 cases. So it wasn't feasible or smart or safe to bring that satellite roster to Stockton as much as they wanted to be there uh, just for convenience sake. 
Um, you know, luckily there's a lot of different minor league options in the Bay Area. So when the San Francisco Giants established Sutter Health Park in Sacramento, home of the River Cats, for their alternate site, you know, there was some talk between the two teams of, well, if no one's using San Jose, would it work? If, can, can we make something work? You know, worst case scenario. And, you know, but I think um, it took maybe about two and a half days for them to figure out if it was realistic, if they could make it work. And that was really a joint partnership between the Oakland A's minor league staff and the Oakland A's front office, the San Francisco Giants front office and the San Jose Giants front office. That, those kind of those groups kind of just banded together and they made something work out of nothing. And I, I think that really speaks to what the minor leagues is like really prides itself on, you know? Yeah, especially this discussion between the A's and the Giants in your discussions with everybody involved, like what did those two sides talk about? Because uh, it's not like the Giants own San Jose or like anything like that. Uh, just because it's, you're affiliated with them, you're not going to be like, hey, they're our little brother. Uh, don't screw it up. But like, what were the conversations like of like, hey, is this okay between those two sides? It's one thing for the A's to talk to San Jose because they're using their facilities directly. The Giants are kind of like a silent partner in this, at least hands-off wise. What, what were the discussions between the Jays and or the Giants and the A's? Right, right. Um, I think the between the Giants and the A's, it was pretty much the Giants being really open, saying, of course, you know, we want to help you guys out. This is a strange year, to say the least. 2020 has not had a lot of positives. So, you know, we're open to to making something work. And, and the A's, too, you know, we it was when talking to San Jose, who was kind of like the mediator, um, it was just more of like everyone was on board. You know, everyone knew this was the right thing to do and something that they wanted to be a part of. They just didn't know how or if they could make it work from a feasibility standpoint but it was never a question of oh we don't know if we want this it was we want this we just don't know how we're going to figure it out but we're going to figure it out um so you know i i think that that's really important i know that the a's and the giants have their own little their own crosstown rivalry or maybe like cross bay rivalry um but that really seemed to play no part in um the negotiations there Katie, the situation to get a ballpark ready uh, to host, you know, daily activities, obviously it's not quite the same as hosting a, a minor league season or a major league season, but it sounds like San Jose was pretty well taking care of uh, its facility and its playing surface and all that as though they were in the middle of a season. Was it just kind of a plug and play situation where they figured out, all right, we're going to have this team here, fields ready to go, let's get the clubhouse ready to go and we're off. How did, how did that whole thing come together? It pretty much came together within a matter of days. You know, there wasn't a lot of time to work with, so it was a pretty much all-hands-on-deck situation. But the one thing that San Jose made very clear, I, was, I talked to Ben Taylor, who was their chief operating officer on the front office staff, was they wanted baseball. They wanted some semblance of baseball to take place in San Jose. They wanted to bring it back to, for their field, for their community, in any way that they could. So this was something that they knew they wanted to make happen. And, and in talking to Ben, he made up this really good point in saying, you know, being creative and making something out of nothing is not something that's not unique to the minors. You know, I, I think everyone who has been around minor league baseball, as you guys certainly know, knows that being creative and thinking on your feet and making something out of nothing are, is kind of like what the minor leagues prides itself on. Um, I think you'll find in a lot of situations when you're facing a lot of negatives, especially with COVID-19, when there's a lot of things that you just can't do, a lot of people tend to like shy away from this task or, or just say, you know, it's going to be too hard to figure something out. But San Jose really dove all in. They said, you know, this is obviously, we don't know what an alternate site is. We've never had to plan that. 
But isn't that what kind of minor league baseball is all about, is, is figuring out what to do in a situation where it doesn't seem like there is anything to do? Um, ben Taylor said it was probably, you know, one of the more new and fun, exciting things the staff had to do. Obviously, San Jose wishes there was a regular minor league season, but I think they're making the best out of the situation right now. And, and just logistically, in terms of making the best of, of this situation, you mentioned that, like, A's equipment managers were involved. And one of my favorite quotes in this story uh, is about baseballs and the amount of baseballs that need to be shipped to an alternate site. And sometimes you can just, you know, put them up on a truck. Truck day is a big deal for spring training. Uh, but for this, your quote is, there's just boxes of boxes of baseballs, and, you know, you can't just slip those in an envelope and send them. Discussions about the post office that are going on right now aside, what logistically was the biggest hurdle in overcoming this, not just negotiations between these three teams, but just making sure that this stadium was ready to be an alternate site? Right. You know, once the negotiations had had passed and the A's and the Giants and the San Jose Giants were all on the same page, it was this mad rush to get all this equipment um, ranging from medical supplies to gym equipment to yes of course baseballs we don't think about you know how much baseballs a um, a team goes through in just one day and the the big problem was that there was equipment kind of scattered all over the place i talked about this in the story you know there's some in stockton that had already been shipped there at the end of spring training some was in oakland some was in mesa arizona where the a's first spring training was so it was kind of this mad rush of where are our things and how do we get our things to San Jose? Um, and you know, obviously it's not easy to, to ship a medical table or a treadmill or weights. And it apparently is not easy to ship baseballs either. So um, what I, when I talked to the A's minor league staff, I talked to Zach Bash, who's the director of the A's minor league um, operations. And there was this quartet of minor league staff that really helped him figure that out. That was Thomas Miller and Chad Iaconetti. They are the minor league equipment managers. And then they actually worked with the athletic trainers, um, Justin Whitehouse, who is the A's AAA affiliate uh, athletic trainer, and Shane Zadibiak, who does AA Midland. So those four guys, along with Zach, kind of just an all hands on deck situation again, you know, and, and figured out, okay, how do we get the stuff here? Um, where, what's the best way and the quickest way to move our equipment is, you know, it was kind of just this like random hodgepodge of things that were thrown at them. And, you know, you don't have any time to waste thinking about how impractical it is. You just kind of have to go and figure it out. One thing that I didn't really get to touch on in the story. So I'm glad we brought it up is, you know, on, on a lot of these alternate training sites, you have an abundance of maybe some top prospects or first round draft picks, some minor league guys that cert certainly have, you know, some, some weight to them, but they haven't really established themselves in professional baseball for that long. The A's are a little different. They have a kind of a, a mixture of AAA players and big league players, for lack of a better term, the 4A guys. They're constantly dipping into that roster and bringing some guys up and sending them down. But from an equipment standpoint, you know, once you reach the majors, you have so much personal stuff as well. So the A's also had to figure out, okay, well, how are we going to get these guys and their 10 bats per person and all of their shoes and all of their personal equipment to fit into these tiny California League clubhouses? Um, but, you know, I, I guess the underlying theme of this story is even when it looks like there's not an option to make it work, the minor league guys are able to figure out a way to make it work in any way. That is like the uh, the mantra of minor league baseball. I feel like we should all adopt that as a 
as a slogan. We can figure out a way to make it work. Um, Katie's story is up on the site right now. It's terrific. Even if you're not a fan of the, the A's or the Giants, this is a great story on a lot of good people pitching together to figure out how to, uh, to make something feasible in a, a difficult year. And uh, you can find Katie on Twitter at Katie J. Woo. Katie, thanks so much for the time. This is a great one, as always. Guys, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Love what you do. Saying goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. Before we do, Sam has this week's nationwide prospect fun fact. So this one's going to get into a little bit of the stack cast weeds. Not too far deep. We're not going to get into something like ex-WOBA or something like that. But uh, one thing that stood out to me about the early start to the season is Joe Adele has been off to a rough start for the Los Angeles Angels. One of our favorite prospects to follow, um, one of the toolsiest outfield prospects in the game right now. Really thought he had a chance to impact the Angels roster when the time came for him to make the jump to Los Angeles. He's got plus power, plus speed, good defensive ability. He moved to right field. Then unfortunately it kind of, Unraveled from there, you might know at home that he tried to catch a ball off the bat of Nick Solak, hit the glove, went over the wall for a four-base error instead of a home run. There's been some debate about, about that, what have you. Um, he's yet to hit an extra base hit, um, which is a little bit worrisome for, again, somebody who we think will have good power from the right side. But this prospect, fun fact, comes to you via StatCast, and it brings some promise to Joe Adele and why we're excited about him, why we do think – his bat will play at the next level uh, with some adjustments as he gets more comfortable. As things stand here on Wednesday, he has two of the three hardest hit balls by any Angels player in the 2020 season. This is, again, a roster with Mike Trout. He's hit His two hardest hit balls are harder than anything Mike Trout has hit this year. Uh, this is a roster with Shohei Otani. Joe Adele has the hardest hit ball on the Angels roster. He hit a ball at 115.5 miles an hour off the bat. Uh, Otani's best was 111.9 and then Adele was third at 111.5 so he's making really really hard contact the contact that we saw him make last year at Inland Empire at Mobile at Salt Lake the difference is he's hitting it on the ground right now his average launch angle uh, I think is negative 0.6 so essentially he's not even getting the ball in, in the air when he is making contact once that change happens and I think that's just a major league adjustment, seeing the pitches better, uh, making stronger contact into the air, you're going to see those extra base hits pile up. But the fact that when he is making contact, it's going consistently 100 miles an hour over, those homers are going to come. That, that stuff you can't teach. You can't teach hitting the ball super hard, harder than an Otani, harder than a Trout, harder than a Justin Upton or a Brian Goodwin or some of these other gifted Angels hitters so far on the year. Anthony Rendon, he's hit balls harder than Anthony Rendon, and Anthony Rendon is one of the best players we have in the game right now. Um, so when somebody like Adele, who you know the tools are there, and it, the tools aren't translating, dig a little deeper. Try to fight, figure out why. For him, the contact ability is there. All the scouting reports were correct. It's just he needs to get the ball in the air. Once that happens, everything else will fall into place. I got uh, lost in Mike Trout's baseball reference page uh, during this conversation, which I invite all of you to do because it is tremendously entertaining. Do you know the lowest OPS of Mike Trout's career was 939, and that was his first MVP season? That was the lowest OPS for a season in his career, and he won an MVP. <laughs> <in that year. laughs> 
<laughs> Mike Trout. If you ever just like lose yourself in Mike Trout's baseball reference page, it is the same thing with Barry Bonds or with Ty Cobb or with Ted Williams or, you know, some of the Willie Mays, some of the all-time greats. Um, you can waste – not waste because it is a very valuable thing to do with your time, but you can spend a lot of time just like, what are these num- – how are these numbers real? It's ridiculous. One of my favorite things about the baseball reference pages is what they do with the bolding and the italics to tell you yeah. led the league and then right. led all of baseball. And then they even do it in gold if they're an all-time leader uh, or they set like a single season record, I think, uh, which just makes it so much more aesthetically pleasing too. Yeah. Yeah, like you, totally. you mentioned Ted Williams. Obviously, people know I'm, I'm from Massachusetts. I love looking at Ted Williams's page or Pedro Martinez's and just seeing all of that bold italics. And you're like, oh, everybody's must be like this. No, no, it is not. It's- Mike Trout for a full season has not posted a sub 400 on base percentage since 2014. Now, this year, that is somewhat in danger of uh, falling. Now, granted, we're 20 games into a 60 game season. He's only at 356, uh, but his OPS last year, or his, his on base percentage last year, 438, 460 in 2018, 442 in 2017, 441 in 2016. 402 in 2015. The last time that he had a sub 400 on base percentage was 2014, which was the year he OPS 939 and won that MVP. <laughs> what? What? That was Mike Trout's worst season, really. And he won the MVP, his first of three so far to this point. He's also got uh, four other second place finishes in MVP voting and one fourth place finish. He is he's absurd. This was not supposed to turn into the Mike Trout hour, but like he comes up and then you're like, oh, he's the greatest player I've ever seen. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it is kind of, a, and I think we talk about it plenty, not necessarily on this show, but like just in the baseball universe about how good a player Mike Trout is. But even then, like uh, it, 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 I will never say he's underrated, but it is kind of difficult to step back sometimes and realize historically yeah. just how good he already is. What's yeah. what's his war already? Isn't it already 70 something? Yeah, it is. Uh, hang on. Let me, let me, I closed it so I wouldn't continue. Sorry to my, use you as my personal Siri on this. But. My trout's eyes. Um, his career war, according to baseball references, 73.3. <laughs> yeah. So if he retired today, he would be in the hall of fame. Like, he is absurd. He's so absurd. And yeah, you put Joe Adele in that outfield and you know, the the amount of just tools galore in you know, you look at somebody Michael Hermosillo, who I think in a ton of organizations would have been one of the most exciting outfield prospects that has come through in quite some time uh, and has been at the big league level at a walk-off hit a couple of weeks ago, uh, is a, an effective big league player. That system, Mike Trout's there, Joe Adele's there, uh, Cole Calhoun was there until this year. Like, they've had just so many dudes go through that you're like, oh, and they have guys like this too? And Michael Hermosillo's a stud? Nobody even remembers that he's in that system half the time because everybody else is so good? And then Brandon Marsh, like we talked Brandon about. Marsh, yeah, Brandon Marsh, friend of the show. Like, yeah, we mentioned with JP. Uh, Brandon Marsh, Jordan Adams, who might have been the most athletic player in the, the draft when he was taken. Ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's, it's insane. And it's, it, that's what makes it all, you know, we talked about this with JP before. My question of like, what do we do with the Angels? Where it's, yeah, right. Like, all of these pieces are there and they, they are a very exciting system. Uh, but it just, it isn't working out right now. And right. They've got to either cash some of the chips or start spending in other ways. Uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that they had Otani. They have Otani. They didn't have him. But, like, him going through his elbow issues this year, they had an ace. 
yeah. in the hole. And yeah. he also plays DH, and it's awesome what he can do. Uh, but now they're only getting one of those benefits. And, you know, who's their ace now? It's Dylan Bundy, who's having a great season. A, right. A resurgent season in many ways. Um, but the other pieces aren't there to make this a team that should be – like th- this postseason, this expanded postseason, almost feels like it was made to get Mike Trout in there. Yeah. And he can't throw the ball. He can't come out of the bullpen. Right. There's only so much one guy can do, and there's only so much five good hitters can do even then. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, it is uh, – what an interesting season this is going to be before it's all said and done in the next few uh, – I don't want to say few weeks. we still got like five, six weeks to the regular season, but it is going to be a, a fascinating next uh, several weeks to watch. And we will be here with you uh, through all of it, and uh, we'll, have, we'll continue to have some fun on this podcast trade deadline coming up at the end of the month. Uh, Big thanks to JP for talking about that a little bit with us and to Ben and to Katie as well. And uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Moore. We'll talk to you next week.